there are a number of, of areas, but the first I think is uh, know, know the student population, uh, know what it is, clearly have identified, the, working with the community, clearly identify the goal you seek, uh, and, then, and then work as a true partner. When you ask students in middle school, are you going, going to college? They all say yes. Um, and as they get older and older, fewer and fewer of them still have that vision in large part because they start to understand the gap between, you know, their aspirational goal for college and what they've done to get ready. So really wanting to help students um, understand that if you want to go to college, there's things that you need to do in middle school and high school to get you ready for that. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today, Getting Smart's Mary Ryersey is talking with two education leaders who work in the realm of student readiness. First, we'll hear from Heather Gingrich of College Spark Washington with the story of an exciting initiative that has generated huge results in Washington State. Then Mary chats with former governor of West Virginia, Bob Wise, who is CEO of the Alliance for Excellence in Education, and he offers a national perspective on the state of readiness. This is definitely worth the listen. Here's Mary to get us started. We are really excited to be sharing the latest thinking and results around college career and really life readiness. Um, In this podcast, one of our guests, Governor Wise, talks about the importance of capturing people's attention with a story or a real-life example, and then supporting with data and strategy to be able to plan um, for implementation. So today, what we're really excited about is we have Heather Gingrich with us to share this story. And Heather is from College Spark Washington, which is a private foundation based in Washington State who has supported a lot of initiatives And the one in particular that we'll be speaking to today is the College Readiness Initiative. So, Heather, welcome. We're really glad you're here with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about College Park Washington and the College Readiness Initiative. Okay. So, yeah, College Park Washington is an education foundation in Washington State. Our mission is to improve um, college completion rates for low-income students here in Washington, and we make grants to... uh, community-based organizations, schools and colleges from middle school all the way through uh, four-year colleges to try to help more students succeed. So the College Readiness Initiative was our first sort of large-scale investment in a K-12 and the K-12 system. Um, It was our first uh, investment. It was 40 to 50 schools working on a couple of programs that had a really good evidence base for improving college readiness. Awesome. So talk a little bit about, my understanding is that College Park does some initiatives where maybe um, educators will have a great idea and they come to you and say, will you fund this? And then in this case, this was something where you set a goal and a vision and, and had some specific things that you were looking to, to impact. So tell us a little bit more about that, both from a general standpoint and then why specifically you invested as you did in the College Readiness Initiative. Sure. So, yeah, we have a community grants program where um, schools and community-based organizations, colleges can write in. We have a couple of um, student outcome indicators we're really focused on wanting to move the needle on. And anybody who has an idea um, about how to make that happen on their particular, in their building or on their campus can can write a proposal to that program. Um, That's our community community grants program. In our initiatives, we typically are, it's more of a situation where we're seeking out strategies that we think can have a large-scale impact. So with this one, we spent about a year or two looking at um, various programs at the high school and middle school level that had an evidence base. Um, so they had, they'd have some third-party research showing that when you implement these kinds of strategies in schools, the, the needle moves on some of the outcomes that we were really focused on at the time. And so um, we went from, I think, 50-some programs we were looking at, narrowed that down to 12, narrowed it down to 6. Um, you know, started starting doing more investigation. We did a lot of talking to the schools about their receptiveness to these programs. Um, 
both of the programs had some presence in Washington State. So there were um, a handful of schools doing each of these programs at the time when we invested. So we went and visited those schools, found out you know how they felt about the programs, what the difference was that it was making from their perspective, um, and then we really just wanted to grow them. You know, we want they they seemed to be having a good impact on students, and they were well received by educators. And so we worked with various partners to try to create a situation where more schools could learn about these programs and where they could, they could re receive funding from us to get to get them started. Awesome. So let's talk just a little bit about the specifics, the indicators that you were seeking to move. You mentioned like graduating from high school and being college ready. What else? Like transcripts? Yeah. So at that time, I mean, this this was more than 10 years ago that we started down this process. And at that at that point, the the um, standardized test for what, what, it, what students had to take to graduate from high school was not a standard that met a college readiness standard, so there was a gap um, in terms of testing. There's all, there was also a gap in terms of what you had to take in high school to graduate versus the courses you would need to take to get into a four-year college. There was a pretty sizable gap there, too. And so looking at those two those factors as well as the fact that, um, you know, the students, the, the courses students take in high school really do have a pretty strong predictive um, power in terms of how they're going to do in college. So transcripts was a big part of it. How can we help more students um, take more challenging classes in high school? How can we help them succeed in those classes? Um, how can we help them understand that even though you don't need to take an extra year of math, if you do, you're, you're much more well positioned to do well in college and to avoid remediation when you get there. Um, so those are some of the things we were looking at, really wanting to look at programs that help students who were not likely to become college ready to, to make that transition, to get the academic, academic support they needed to become college ready, um, and then to really understand what what their options were after high school. I think, you know, what, a lot of the survey data we looked at, when, when you ask students in middle school, are you going, going to college, they all say yes. Um, and as they get older and older, fewer and fewer of them still have that vision in large part because they start to understand the gap between, you know, their aspirational goal for college and what they've done to get ready. So really wanting to help students um, understand that if you want to go to college, there's things that you need to do in middle school and high school to get you ready for that. Right. And there's a there's an interesting report recently out from the Ed Trust, and it talked about meandering toward graduation. And even with the increased awareness around um, what kids need to be able to be successful in a post-high school environment. Still, what uh, Ed Trust found is that only four in 10 high school graduates were completing a college-ready course of study. So those, it's interesting to talk, because like, even 10 years ago, that was true, and there have been improvements in a lot of areas, but not necessarily um, in some of the ones that make the biggest difference, unless there's yeah. been an initiative like College Spark Washington and the College Readiness Initiative that's really seeking to make an impact. So just tell us a little bit about the, the two programs um, that you selected about AVID and Career Guidance Washington and what you sought to do with each of them and um, what you think of that. Okay, so AVID, so there were, there were two main programs, AVID and Career Guidance Washington. AVID just had this really great track record for working with relatively small groups of students in an, advice, in an, in an elective class um, where they got support for doing well in a kind of a college prep curriculum in middle school and high school. So um, we looked at that as really a way to uh, support students in becoming academically ready. So putting students in more rigorous courses, but then giving them the support to make sure they do well there. Um, since we began investing in AVID, they've really transitioned to more of a whole school model where it's not just the students in the elective, but it's things that they're doing with, within their building as a whole. Um, but, but it was really the academic readiness that we felt like they had a really good handle on how to help students really develop those skills. 
So that was one piece of it. The other one is Career Guidance Washington. At the time, it was called Navigation 101. But it was it was um, kind of a homegrown program here in Washington State um, that some educators and counselors had kind of put together to really make sure that all students get the information they need. Um, I think it's probably not a surprise to anybody that, you know, 10 years ago, it was definitely the students who needed college and career guidance the most were not the ones who got it. It was often the students who had parents who were already kind of helping them understand what they needed to do to prepare and, and really understood their options were the ones that really sought out that guidance and counseling. And so um, it was a way to kind of deliver an advisory curriculum to all students in a school so that every student really understand understood the difference between what are your options after high school? What's the difference between a two-year college and a four-year college? What are the kind of pros and cons to each of those depending on your situation? What do you need to do, do to prepare to be ready to um, exceed and succeed in both of those environments, um, as well as the other options that are available to students after college. So it was really focused on um, just getting good college and career information to all students, um, supporting students with a mentor. I mean, that, that was a big piece of the program that worked um, better in some situations than, than others, but, but making sure that every student had somebody at their school who um, was connected with them, who, who was making sure that they were understanding um, that they had a plan for where they were going after high school and, and really understood what to do to prepare for that. Right. That's just such a great example. We talk about there's a lot more attention now than there was 10 years ago around social emotional learning and that support and mentor and relationship. And, um, and, and it is possible to do a both end. You've modeled that in this initiative. And as we talk with you and Governor Wise about this whole concept of being college ready, career ready and life ready, all of those things matter. Uh, and, and we don't say that at all with the social emotional learning to say that these are all soft skills because there's also hard data. And what uh, the College Readiness Initiative has shown that these schools relative to comparable schools in Washington, grad rates were almost 20% higher in these grant funded schools. And I know that you through this process, you move the needle in terms of college ready transcripts where 38% of kids had a college ready transcript when you started. And towards the end, 54% and even more had college-ready transcripts. So that's a big, a significant jump. So as a, as a foundation and um, as a funder, how do you see that in terms of the progress and the impact? What are you guys saying? Are you pleased with that? And uh, obviously there's always more that can be done, but tell us what you think of the impact. No, we were really we were really proud of that. I mean, I think that it was um, it's always tough in in grant making to really be able to make a measurable impact to do something where you can say grantees implemented this strategy and as a result they've gotten these outcomes. It's 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 rare to get that kind of um, movement on outcomes, especially at this scale. This was 40, 50 schools doing the, doing these programs. So it was a, it was a large group. So we were really pleased um, pleased with the impact. Ultimately, our goal is to affect college completion rates in Washington State. But you know you can't just it's 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 tricky because. You know, nobody, nobody has, no, no single person um, has that influence over a student throughout their entire career. So we focus on middle school, high school, and college and try to make some good things happen here at, at, at those levels in hopes that that will ultimately translate into higher college completion rates. And uh, those were a couple of the, the, the data that you mentioned, high school completion rates, transcript rates. We're looking at remediation rates in college, college enrollment and persistence rates. Um, looking at those those kind of figures going up is, is all pointing in the right direction. So it was, it was, it was an impact that we were excited excited about, um, super honored to support these programs in these schools that really, um, you know, it wasn't, these weren't easy things to do, especially Career Guidance Washington was a really, uh, it's getting every educator in your building involved in doing advising, which may not be something that they're, they're all that comfortable with when they start. And so it was a big, I think it was hard. It was a hard thing to do, but the schools did an amazing job with, um, helping, helping folks feel supported in doing this work. Um, and we were pleased with the impact. 
That's that's awesome. And, and how powerful as we talk just in this general take on readiness and how to promote equity and access for all kids and to see the real numbers and real data. And I know um, both you and Governor Wise emphasize the importance of partnerships. And I know you took a partnership approach. What is What advice do you have in terms of uh, funders and partners and how to make that work to really move the needle? Um, yeah, I mean, partnerships can be really messy. I mean, everybody who's coming to the table in a large partnership group like this, where there's, you know, multiple organizations coming together to work on an initiative, yeah, everybody's kind of a cult- accountable to a different set of stakeholders, and they all have their own kind of cultural norms for how things get done. They have their, they have competing priorities, so it can be hard. I mean, there's there's places where there's turf battles and um, different ways of kind of doing things, so it's, it's you have to kind of expect things to get messy and to be hard along the way, um, but for sure, you know, we all need each other. And, and we can't accomplish um, what we want to accomplish without each other. So I think it's it's just a matter of kind of rolling up your, your sleeves, being really clear on the goal and the objectives and kind of continuing to circle back to those when things start to go sideways. Um, and uh, really, really kind of capitalizing on what each partner brings to the table and what they do well and what they can, the part of the mission they can carry. Right. Well, Heather, thank you so much for for sharing these insights. Do you have any other um, words of wisdom or encouragement to those who are trying to move the needle and provide um, equity and access and propel readiness? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just one of those things you have to take the long view. You know, it's it's um it can be frustrating. I mean, I think edu- the issues that certainly that we're trying to, like, trying to move the needle on college completion rates for low income students is is tough in a in a in a large state like Washington where there's so many variables that can derail students and can be challenging along the way. Um, so you know, I think just plugging away and um, focusing in on on the, the things you can change and, and connecting the work you're doing with the other the work that others are doing in the same area uh, is a way to kind of eventually get there. Awesome. Well, we appreciate having a real life example with real data and real impact um, that can be replicated across the nation as we look at how to improve college readiness, career readiness, life readiness, and do that for all kids. So thank you very much for your time. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and today we're sharing a conversation around readiness for all that Getting Smart team member Mary Ryersey recently had with two education leaders. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to visit our iTunes channel, where we have over 50 additional episodes featuring ed leaders speaking on topics that range from the platform revolution to design thinking in education to place-based education. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. Up next, Mary speaks more with Governor Wise. In your work with with uh, initiatives like XQ or your work at the Alliance, what are you seeing happening in terms of a broadening of the definition of readiness? I think what we called college and career readiness maybe 10 years ago um, is evolving still today. What are some of your observations? It's, it's evolving rapidly. If we were having this discussion 10, maybe 15 years ago, we would have been talking in terms of academic readiness only, particularly reading and math scores. Uh, now we're talking about, and which I think is important, is about whether you call it deeper learning or 21st century skills, the ability of not only to master core academic content, but also the ability to think critically, uh, to collaborate with one another, to work in teams, to communicate and uh, problem solve. And I think most importantly is to learn how to learn. So recognizing that students are not only learning today, but they must be agents and masters of their own learning throughout their life. So these are core uh, requirements now for college and career readiness. 
Right. And it's interesting to see like the um, association of, of school administrators has really extended and even talked about the concept of college career and life readiness, which really in- includes a lot of the social emotional learning competencies and the things that, um, for example, the Aspen Institute is working on with social emotional and academic development. So are there any other observations you've seen there? Because I think that's a there's this, the 21st century skills piece, um, as you described, and then also this even some of the interpersonal or intrapersonal pieces as well. What what I believe is happening is that, and which is very positive uh, development, is that as the science of learning evolves, and as we move in the science of learning from not just one particular period, early childhood, which is critically important, but also across the spectrum of an adolescent and post-adolescent youth, that what we're seeing is how important social emotional aspects are. And so the ability, uh, the ability of someone to have success in life, whether particularly mastering and applying academic knowledge and problem solving and the other deeper learning uh, competencies, that depends upon, uh, largely depends upon the social emotional aspects and elements uh, that they have acquired along the way and developed. We at the Alliance for Excellent Education believe that it's important to look closely through at what science is teaching us, not only about brain development, but about learning and also the impact of external factors. So that child that comes into that school of having been traumatized in some way, whether it's by poverty or other conditions, what what is it that, how do you meet their needs so that they can truly be a, a, a learner as well and also have success in life? Well, and I think that's a, a perfect segue into the a question that we also wanted to ask is, how do you think that readiness, this whole concept or broad definition of readiness, can be ensured for all people, particularly those who are underrepresented? And what are some of the areas of emphasis that you've seen or best practices that you've seen as promising? The best practices I've seen are those that seek to engage the student at where they are, uh, whether you call that personalized learning, there's other names as well, but seeking to engage the student where they are, starting with that as a benchmark, identifying with the student, parents, and others, identifying what it is, what are the learning outcomes that you seek, and then uh, uh, working towards that. And particularly now that we have more science to guide uh, what what the new federal legislation calls evidence-backed. We have more science to guide us. We have, I think, greatly improved research and pedagogy that's developed and, and also technology, technology which gives that teacher the ability to truly be an educational designer in ways that he or she w- could not have been in a classroom with 25 students before. Now they have capabilities and tools that they never had. So this combination, I believe, is leading us to an exciting era in education and one where we can have high expectations of all students, recognizing though that one size does not fit all. And so this emphasizes personalized learning. Personalized learning, of course, must take into account what are the so the child's social emotional strengths and, and challenges, what and as well as the other aspects of academic knowledge uh, and, and uh, ways they learn. I do want to note that I think the key to successful learning outcomes is is based upon successful uh, learning processes. And so whether it is through, we, we work closely at the Alliance in California with the Linked Learning Alliance, which uses work-based 
uh, learning to uh, uh, to in, engage students in areas that interest them, uh, whether it's by other means, project-based learning or other means. What's important is that students are being engaged. Uh, that's, that's good as a strategy, and it's also very good for their learning outcomes. And that's just critical to have the, the student at the center. And as, as we know, that takes a lot of work and, and likely some partnerships. And I, I think... Um, if we look at even the whole area of guidance, so personalized guidance and what that looks like for students in terms of who they are, where they're headed, and how they're going to get there, as you describe that importance of the process, Governor, I think of one example from Washington State is an initiative that's been supported by College Spark Washington, a private foundation in Washington State, and serving students in typically underrepresented populations. And one of the things that was emphasized in that initiative was really implementing systematic processes, what, including student-led conferences, a personalized learning plan, advisory structures, um, work experiences, as you described, with the linked learning. So um, maybe extend for just a bit what you've seen in terms of that whole personal, because we could talk about personalization of math, of reading, of science, and all of those things are important. And I think it's important uh, to remember, I think we both agree on this, that that personalization extends to that student's future planning too. So have you seen, um, talk about your observations. I know you've seen um, some of those things that we just referenced. So how do you see it as important there? Well, what I, what's important is that I'm seeing increased evidence and examples of this. You mentioned uh, this one, I, I mentioned the Linked Learning Alliance, but there are a number of other, whether they, they have specific names uh, such as a a new tech or a uh, P-Tech or other summit uh, public charters and so on, or these are uh, uh, pedagogies that are being applied uh, in various school settings. It, the important thing is that they have common elements and you just referenced them. The common elements, and, and particularly this is so important with partnerships, the common elements are somebody's, there's a comprehensive, first of all, it's comprehensive. It's not you don't take one element or another and then say, we've got a program and a partnership. Uh, you're identifying uh, in that comprehensive element, you're identifying what support the child needs in whatever their challenges are. Uh, you're identifying their strengths and weaknesses. You're identifying, uh, you're providing them engaging experiences both in the classroom uh, and also work-based experiences when, when you can. Uh, so there's relevance to what you're doing. And then you're also uh, measuring constantly, but the measuring is not for for punitive or sanctions, or uh, it's it's part of the learning process. And I think you also have to recognize, and that's importance of partnerships. Learning is a twenty four seven enterprise, and it doesn't start or stop at the schoolhouse door. So, how do those partnerships enhance that twenty four seven learning process? And it's and and so whether it's uh, a uh, comprehensive uh, after-school program, perhaps run by a civic organization, uh, whether it's making sure that children have the technology tools they need, whether it's tutoring, folks coming in to mentor, whether it's work-based experiences, maker fairs. I mean, we, we can, the list goes on and on, and that's what's exciting that what's happening across the country is people are finding and, and building their own means uh, to provide these 24-7 learning experiences for children. And, and ideally also personalizing it, once again, meeting each student where he or she is, and then building on that. 
be interesting to hear your view on what some of the key, your key advice is to some of these different partnership kind of categories of, of people who participate in a partnership. So ranging from funders to policymakers to pra- practitioners. I think it used to be often that funders would provide funding, not necessarily with the as clear a vision or as clear desired outcomes as maybe we're seeing today. So I think of the example of College Spark Washington really wanting to move the needle on graduation rates, which they did by about 20%, and likewise on college-ready transcripts. So that the funder in that case came in with a vision and said, here's how we want to do it. We think we can work in partnership with a state agency, with organizations like AVID and Career Guidance Washington and others. Um, what is your advice today for funders who are looking to invest in an initiative or see long-term outcomes? What, what do you think is key? I think you, you've, you've referenced, talked about a couple of them. First of all, you, I think it's important to have clear goals. And uh, I think it's also important to know the, the student population and communities that you're working with and what are the u- unique strengths and challenges in that community to achieving those goals. I think there's some, there are a couple of other elements. First of all, whether a funder or a partner, you need to approach the community and that you seek to do good in, and, and thank you for doing that. But you need to approach it, approach with humility and respect, recognizing that uh, nobody's uh, nobody reacts well to simply having something imposed upon them, but they do. They do appreciate true partnership. So approach as a partner, uh, mm-hmm. and everybody's an equal in this discussion. And then I'm I'm a believer too is that you're constantly seeking to broaden those partnerships. So just as a funder may come in, but can the funder or work to create the situation where others are able to come in and assist? And that doesn't necessarily mean with money. It could be mentorships. It could be workplace experiences. Uh, it could be assist technical assistance in areas that a school or a prep school district or charter school might need, such as accounting, budgeting, and so on. So there are a number of, of areas. But the first, I think, is uh, know, know the student population uh, know what it is, clearly have identified, the, working with the community, clearly identify the goal you seek, uh, and then and then work as a true partner. Wow, that if that wisdom could re- be replicated, there's, there's not much that can't be accomplished, right? So, uh, and how would you uh, add to that with comments about policymakers and the role of policy and how you see that, that changing and then ultimately impacting the kind of the front line with the practitioners? So policy, uh, I think policy is approached two ways. One is what are the policies you need or are there policies that are in the way that you need to get rid of? What I have found, and this comes through the Alliance for Excellent Education has now conducted 20 future-ready school summits in which we convene anywhere from 30 to 50 school district superintendents to help start them through a planning process. How do you achieve student higher student learning outcomes per, through personalized learning and effective use of technology? But from these summits, I've developed some real added, some views on policy. First of all is recognize that 80% of the time that what you believe is a policy that's holding you back doesn't exist, mm-hmm. that it's urban myth. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how many times I've had a superintendent or a district leader say to me, well, 20 years ago, we understood that someone at the, at the local board of education said you can't do this. And you go back and there's nothing written down. And so you have to proceed ahead as you just proceed ahead as though until somebody stops you, you can go. The yeah. second thing is that um, it's easier to take out bad policies and to create new ones. 
And so if there's something that you can demonstrate is clearly holding you back, particularly at the local level, then make the case for it. And then the, and, and then the third is creating the policies you need. Uh, but I do want to note that, that also key to policy development is successful practice. And if you can demonstrate, and what I think the best policy development is what policy that emanates from successful practice versus policy telling you what the practice will be. Mm. And so uh, if you can demonstrate that in this school or perhaps in another school that looks like what you want to do, here are the teaching practices that are working well, here's the pedagogy, here's the, here, here's the implementation and how it's taking place, that, that can inform the policy, whether at the school level, the district level, or the state level. The best, uh, the best we, we think it's critically important. You have to be able to tell stories about what's happening in successful schools if you want to have successful policy. And finally, let me just note about policy. The best policy is leveraging good practice. So something's working for 500 students in this school or 10,000 students across uh, a number of school districts then how do you leverage that to work for the millions of traditionally underserved students uh, in policy? But, but use good practice as a lever to do it and to demonstrate what the policy ought to be. Don't just try to enact a policy to get you the practice. Mm, super insightful. And that's, that's really encouraging, I think, for those who are working day in and day out to serve students um, directly and indirectly. And that not only can that practice make a difference for those students, but when um, elevated and you know the evidence is measured of its success, it can really scale to impact um, so many people. Well, you, you just pointed out, I think, something yeah. critically important that I've omitted, uh, which is data, data, data uh, ought to guide everything. That that's the important good policy emanates when you have good practice, but you know you have good practice because you have the data to back it up. Um, a lot of people, and I, and I think there's a, a, a very delicate uh, combination here. Some people want to talk about what, what should be the practice, but they don't have the data. Others say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to generate 10 tomes of data and nobody pays attention. The best combination for a policymaker is when you have 10 tomes of data, but most importantly, you have a story, an anecdote that goes on top of it. You catch their attention with the story, and then if they want to go deeper, now you've got the data to show them and, uh, and to con close the case. Oh, that's powerful. Very powerful. Do you have um, any, as we, as we wrap here, any words of encouragement or um, gratitude for the, the people who do serve our, high, you know, our young people who are evolving into their futures? What, uh, what would be your words of wisdom or encouragement? Well, I, my words of, first of all, my words are appreciation. What I've learned in the past 12 years working every day in the area of education advocacy and policy and reform is there are an incredible number of education heroes out there uh, that are working every day in, in schools and classrooms and also outside uh, the classroom to shape and help students with, and particularly traditionally underserved students, with positive learning experiences. The other thing is, this is an amazing time. Uh, yes, it's very chaotic. I got it. It's very turbulent. <laughs> but there is increasing... I mean, over the last several years, the research that's coming forth, the science of learning that's emerging, the emphasis, increasing emphasis on social emotional learning, the uh, the technology that is enabling teachers to change their pedagogy and to truly be education designers, uh, to adapt and to meet each child where he or she is, 
and then also I think policies are emerging as well and a recognition that the best policies aren't those that try to direct and uh, micromanage, but those that permit uh, open uh, experimentation and, and uh, expression and encourage innovation. So I'm um, out of all of this chaos. Uh, uh, I, I, th I think it's a turbulent time, but as one pilot said one time when I was on a very bumpy flight, uh, and he came on to reassure everybody and let us know that we were still going, we were going to land a half an hour earlier because of the rough tailwind. He said, this is what we call constructive turbulence. And right yeah. now uh, we're in a period of that. But those people in the classroom, those people running schools, those people that are setting policy, those partners, yeah, they're, what they're doing is they're shaping, they have the opportunity and many are shaping education for the next generation. And I'm very, very excited about a lot of what I see taking place. Well, thank you for the, speaking of education heroes and people who've worked tirelessly to advocate for and, and work on behalf of young people and, and those who serve them. We thank you for the work that you do each day and also for taking the time to, to discuss this whole area of college career and life readiness with us. Well, thank you, Mary. And, and what get, Getting Smart does to work with schools and districts across the country and, and uh, uh, you all are some of the most prolific uh, disseminators that I've seen in terms of what's working and we all benefit from your work. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to Mary and Tim Stensager discuss college readiness in Why Guidance Matters for College and Career Readiness, which is Season 1, Episode 22 of the Getting Smart Podcast. You can also check out Season 2, Episode 18, where students at the INACL Symposium share their personal stories of overcoming all odds to succeed in school and prepare themselves for college and career. You can find these and many other education thought leadership podcasts on our iTunes channel. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And we'd love it if you share any of our podcasts with others via whichever social networks you use. We are at getting underscore smart on Twitter. And you'll also find us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. And of course, for more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. A big thanks to Heather and Governor Weiss for speaking with us today. Thank you to Mary for producing this episode. And as always, thanks to Andrew Luck for his mad mixing skills. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Megan and Kat signing off. <laughs>